Please take your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 5. Our study through the Gospel of Matthew leads us to the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 5, beginning with verse 1. Seeing the crowds, Jesus went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. The Lord Jesus opens the famous Sermon on the Mount, the greatest sermon ever preached by the greatest preacher who ever lived, with a section known as the Beatitudes. The Beatitudes, sadly, are often misunderstood and grossly distorted. Some actually refer to the Beatitudes as the Be Happy Attitudes. Some have referred to them as the Secrets of Happiness. And some modern translations even introduce each of the Beatitudes with not the words blessed are, but instead happy are. But I'm afraid that that translation is misleading because happiness in modern day English ordinarily refers to a sense of elation that we feel when everything is going right in our lives when our present circumstances are exactly what we want them to be. In other words, we feel happy because we like our job. We're getting along with our husband or our wife. Our kids are behaving themselves. We have the money to buy what we want. Everyone's healthy. Uh, we feel happy when we've not been paying attention to the evening news or we're staying off of social media and that kind of thing. But when we make the focus of our happiness, the Beatitudes, we almost automatically will misread the Beatitudes as if they're promises of material wealth and physical health, when that's not what they're about at all. Each of the Beatitudes begins with that promise, blessed are. And this is a pronouncement of spiritual blessing. 
The blessed are those who enjoy special favor from God. And what is referred to here is not some temporary happiness based on our present circumstances. It's not an assurance that life won't sometimes be filled with trouble and plagued with difficulties. Instead, what the Lord Jesus is saying is that we can have deep abiding joy because the grace that our Lord has lavished on us in our salvation. And one of the things that makes it clear that the Beatitudes aren't about happiness in this superficial worldly sense is the last of the Beatitudes where he blesses those who are persecuted. Being persecuted includes being reviled, having people say all kinds of evil against us and treating us like they treated the Old Testament prophets, that is, sometimes being tortured and put to death. Does that sound like worldly happiness to you? No, not in the least. What the Lord Jesus is saying is that you can have deep abiding joy as a result of God's spiritual blessings and particularly the blessing of salvation. And the Beatitudes essentially walk us through the process of salvation. They portray the progress of our Christian lives, beginning with our initial repentance up through our moral transformation until finally uh, our experience of persecution. And in these first two Beatitudes that will be our focus this morning, Jesus pronounces salvation on those who are truly and deeply repentant. And he promises that our spiritual poverty will be turned into spiritual wealth and that our spiritual grief will be turned into spiritual joy. The Lord Jesus begins by saying, blessed are the poor in spirit. The word that is translated here as poor, tokas, is derived from a verb that refers to cowering or bowing down timidly. It's the verb that was used to describe the posture of an ancient beggar. Well, he sat on the street, held out his beggar's cup, cowering before those who passed by in hopes that they might drop a coin in the cup that would enable him to live just one more day. The poor in spirit are those who are beggarly in spirit, who recognize that they stand before a holy God as poor, as destitute, and as those whose only hope is to beg for his mercy. Beggars in the ancient world were typically handicapped or otherwise incapacitated, and they were completely unable to provide an income for themselves. Ancient beggars lived in a state of absolute dependence on the generosity of others, total reliance on the kindness and mercy of others. And some of us have seen this kind of true beggar. 
We served with the International Mission Board of the Southern Baptist Convention in Bucharest, Romania for three years. And while we were in Bucharest, we encountered beggars every single day and multiple times a day. Bucharest is a city of four and a half million people and without the infrastructure to care for those who are truly impoverished. And so there are literally thousands and thousands of beggars on the streets. Many of them are homeless children. Many of them are people who were handicapped or injured, but they're dressed in tattered rags and they spend their entire day begging for money or for food. Now, we associate beggars in the United States with scam artists. And there are some of those, I'm sure, in Romania, but most were truly destitute. There were people who would, in the winter, live in the sewers beneath the city because it was the only place warm enough for them to survive the harsh Romanian cold. There are a few beggars that we encountered in Bucharest that really stand out in my mind. Their images are indelibly engraved on my memory. I will never be able to forget them. There was one beggar who had been in some kind of accident, and I'm still baffled that he was able to survive it. But his body had literally been cut in two at the lower torso. And he would put the stump of his torso on this old homemade skateboard made out of a plank and some wheels that someone had found in a junkyard somewhere. And he would propel himself with his arms up and down the street at the intersection going from car to car to car, begging for money so he could live another day. There was another beggar who was at one of the major intersections downtown uh, near the president's mansion. He had obviously been in a horrible fire at some point in the past, and all of the hair had been singed off of his body. His, his whole body was covered with the scars from terrible third-degree burns that disfigured him. He was so badly injured in the fire that he was no longer able to see he was no longer able to move. He was no longer able to speak. He would just sit on a blanket on the sidewalk and moan all day long. The little bowl on a blanket in front of him that would collect coins from people who passed by and cared enough to drop in a coin or two. Most people would not. They were so frightened by his appearance that I would sometimes see people cross several lanes of a dangerous, heavily trafficked street so they just wouldn't have to walk by him on the sidewalk. And these are the kinds of beggars that the Lord Jesus has in mind when he uses this vivid imagery and says, blessed are the poor in spirit. These were people like the beggars of Bucharest who would stand on the streets and say, which means, 
give me money, give me bread, give me anything that I need to survive. The Lord Jesus is describing here people who are utterly destitute, whose only hope is the kindness and mercy of another. And Christ wants us to understand that that is how we stand in relationship to God. Utterly destitute, we have nothing to offer him. Nothing to bargain with. All we can do is plead for his mercy and cast ourselves on his kindness. Robert Gulick, who wrote one of the most famous commentaries ever on the Sermon on the Mount, said that the poor in spirit are those who stand without pretense before God, stripped of all their self-sufficiency, self-security, and self righteousness. There are people like the Apostle Paul who stand before a holy God and recognize themselves as the chief of sinners, the worst of sinners, whose only hope is God's unfathomable grace. You're probably aware that although Matthew's version of this beatitude says blessed are the poor in spirit Luke's version just says blessed are the poor and some people assume that originally Jesus was speaking about people who were physically poor financially poor and then that Matthew spiritualized the beatitude so that it applied to people's need for salvation but, but no you don't even have to say poor in spirit for it to communicate these truths. Even Luke's blessed are the poor does this very well. Because throughout the Old Testament, the poor refer not just to those who have financial needs. The poor are those who cry out to God for help. The poor are those who depend entirely on God's grace to meet their needs. The poor are those who have a humble and contrite spirit who look to God for deliverance and who enjoy his undeserved favor. Psalm 86 is a good example of this. David prays, listen, Lord, and answer me, for I am poor and needy. Now, David is the king of Israel. Uh, one of the greatest kingdoms on earth in that day. When he says, I am poor and needy, do you really think he's talking about financial poverty? No. Poor is clearly a reference to poverty in spirit. And just in case we wonder, he goes on and says, you are my God. Save your servant who trusts in you. Be gracious to me, Lord, for I call to you all day long. Bring joy to your servant's life because I appeal to you, Lord, for you, Lord, are kind and ready to forgive, abounding in faithful love to all who call on you. Lord, hear my prayer and listen to my cries for mercy. In this psalm, who are the poor? 
Are, are they those who have financial needs? No, obviously the king of Israel didn't have financial needs. He lived in lavish wealth. The poor are those who are spiritually impoverished, who recognize that they are sinners in the sight of a holy God who deserve nothing more than his wrath and who have nothing to offer him, nothing to bargain with, whose only hope is to cry out for his grace and mercy. And what the Lord Jesus is teaching is that if we want to know the blessing of his salvation, we must recognize our spiritual bankruptcy. We must recognize that there is nothing good in us that makes us worthy of God's favor. All the morality that we can muster, all of the commandments that we might keep are to no avail in satisfying the standards of our holy, perfect God. Though what we must do is recognize our utter unworthiness and cast ourselves in complete dependence on the grace and mercy of God for our salvation. Augustus Toplady, back in the 1700s, wrote the words to the hymn, Rock of Ages, Cleft for Me. And in the second and third verses of that hymn, he expresses beautifully the confession of the poor in spirit of those who recognize that they are nothing more than spiritual beggars. He wrote, not the labor of my hands can fulfill thy law's demands. Could my zeal no respite know, could my tears forever flow, all could never sin erase. Thou must save and save by grace. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. The hymn expresses the plea of the spiritual beggars who recognizes they have nothing with which to earn their salvation. They have nothing that they can contribute to their salvation. They are hopeless and helpless apart from the grace and kindness of God. And if you've never come to the end of your spiritual rope, if you've never come to that point where you recognized your only hope was God's grace and mercy, then I pray that you'll come to that moment this very day. I trace my salvation to a conversation I had with a pastor in my late teens. I was dating the pastor's daughter and he cared enough to sit me down one day and ask me what I now know are the evangelistic explosion, evangelistic questions. And the first question was, do you know for certain if you died today, you would go to heaven? And the second question is, if you were to die today, and stand before God in judgment, and he asked you, why should I let you into heaven? What would your answer be? And I quickly retorted, well, uh, I've been baptized. I, I try to keep the commandments. 
I, I try to live a good, clean, moral life. I try to keep the golden rule. And after a, while, a bit of that, he raised his hand and he said, now hold on, Chuck, let me, let me ask you this question. Who was the subject of every one of those sentences? I said, well, I. And he said, when you answer the question that way, who are you trusting for your salvation? Is it Jesus Christ or is it yourself? And as the conversation ensued for the first time in my life, I got a glimpse of how a holy God must look at me and my pretensions of self-righteousness. And I was disgusted and ashamed and driven to true repentance, to recognize that my only hope is a gracious Savior who died on the cross for my sins and my place, who paid the penalty for all of my transgressions so that I could escape the wrath of God that I rightly deserve. If you were to answer those diagnostic questions today, how would you answer them? Would it be I, I, I? Would it be me, me, me? If so, then you have not recognized your spiritual destitution. And on judgment day, you will not hear, well done, good and faithful servant. Instead, you will be sentenced to the eternal doom that all hypocrites rightly deserve. Those who truly belong to Christ are those who recognize they are spiritual beggars whose only hope is not their self-righteousness, not their commandment keeping, not their church attendance, not their sacrificial giving, but the grace of God in Jesus Christ. The spiritual paupers who beg a gracious God for salvation, Jesus offers this promise. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The theirs is an, an emphatic position. What Christ is saying is the kingdom of heaven belongs to these and only to these. If you've not recognized your spiritual destitution, you have no place in the eternal kingdom. This kingdom of heaven that Christ refers to here is the kingdom that is frequently mentioned in the book of Daniel. Daniel 2, in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed. And this kingdom will not be conquered by another people. It will crush all human kingdoms and bring them to an end, but it itself will endure forever. And we've repeatedly seen that the Lord Jesus is the king of this eternal kingdom. Daniel 7 has that great son of man vision where one like a son of man appears before the ancient of days and he's given glory, power, authority, and dominion to rule over people of every nation, tribe, and tongue forever and ever and ever. And Daniel writes, his dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will not be destroyed. It's interesting that although most of the promises and the Beatitudes are 
expressed in the future tense, the two promises of the kingdom that wrap around the Beatitudes are expressed in the present tense. It's not there's will be future tense, the kingdom of heaven, but there's is the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom belongs to them right now. Uh, the kingdom is ours because we are subjects of Christ the King even now if we have repented of our sins and believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet we won't experience the full blessings of the kingdom until Christ returns in all of his glory, restores this earth to its original perfection and rids the creation of all of sin's negative effects, its corruption, its suffering, its enmity, death, and that's the moment that the Lord Jesus will refer to in Matthew 25 when he will say in his glory from his throne to those who are truly his sheep, come you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. I'm grateful that he used that expression, inherit the kingdom. Because that expression shows us that the promise, theirs is the kingdom of heaven, doesn't just mean we will be subjects of the kingdom. It means we will be co-regents with Christ in that kingdom. Those who are spiritual paupers will become princes and princesses reigning with Christ and at his side. Christ says, I assure you in the messianic age, when the son of man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses, brothers or sisters, fathers or mothers, children or fields because of my name will receive 100 times more and will inherit eternal life. What Christ is saying is if we recognize that we are spiritual beggars here and now, we will enjoy riches untold in the new creation. If we humble ourselves before a holy God here and now, we will be exalted by him when the kingdom of heaven fully comes. And this beatitude, by the way, is a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. We've looked several times before at the great servant songs of the book of Isaiah. And in one of the servant songs, Isaiah 61, we are told that the servant of the Lord, the Messiah, will bring good news to the poor. And the poor isn't just a reference to those who are financially or materially poor. Poor is used here as it so often is throughout the Old Testament to speak of those who are spiritually destitute, to speak of those who, like King David, in the psalm, confess their sinfulness and their need for God to be loving and kind and forgiving, expressing that as their only Oh, 
This beatitude is clearly an allusion to Isaiah 61.1 because when Jesus preaches the gospel, the good news of the kingdom and its coming, his first act is to pronounce blessing on the poor in spirit. Matthew 11.5 will allude to Isaiah 61.1 again and also portray the Lord Jesus as a fulfillment of it. And of course, in Luke chapter 4, and Jesus preaches in the synagogue of Nazareth. And what is his text for the day? It's Isaiah 61. And after he quotes about how the servant will bring good news to the poor, he then concludes as he rolls up the scroll by saying, Today the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. And what he means by that is that he is the fulfillment of that great promise in Isaiah 61. He is the Messiah who brings the good news of salvation to those who are spiritually impoverished, who are spiritually destitute, and who recognize that He is their one and only hope. But not only does the Lord Jesus save spiritual beggars, He saves those who mourn for their sin. In a spirit of genuine repentance. He says, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And we might be tempted to assume that mourning refers to any kind of grief. Maybe it's grief over illness, over tragedy, grief over the loss of a loved one and that kind of thing. But no, this beatitude, like the first, is yet another allusion to Isaiah 61. And it's clear that those who mourn in Isaiah 61 mourn because they are suffering the consequences of their sin. They recognize now the heinousness of their transgressions, and they are repenting before the Lord. Isaiah 61 says that God sent the servant, quote, to bind up the brokenhearted, to comfort all who mourn, to provide for all those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. If you examine the context of Isaiah 61, you'll find that Israel is mourning because it is repenting of its sin. It's fallen under the judgment of God. It's now clear how serious its rebellion against the holy God is. And its mourning is an expression of repentance. It's grieving. It's sorrowful. Because it is repentant. And the Old Testament abounds with examples of mourning and grieving over sin. In Psalm 119, verse 136, we read, Streams of tears flow from my eyes, for your law is not obeyed. Psalm 40, verse 12, My iniquities have overtaken me, so that I am not able to see. They are more numerous than the hairs of my head, and my heart has failed me. In Psalm 51, David writes, 
You do not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would bring it. You are not pleased with burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. So when the Lord Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn, he's essentially saying, blessed are those who are truly and deeply repentant. And it's been very clear in our study through the Gospel of Matthew thus far that repentance is necessary to enter the kingdom, to have your sins forgiven and be saved. What was the essence of the preaching of John the Baptist? He said, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. What was the essence of the preaching of Jesus? It was to summarize the exact same way as John's. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And now when Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn, he is saying, I bless with salvation those who are truly repentant, who have mourned and grieved over their sin and the way they have defied the commandments of the Almighty. The word for mourn that the Lord Jesus uses in this beatitude is the same way that uh, is the same word that was used by his half brother, James, in James' letter when he wrote, Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you doubters. Get this, be afflicted and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy become heaviness. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he shall lift you Sadly, this deep repentance that characterizes true Christianity throughout the New Testament has become exceptionally rare in our day. People commit the most unimaginable sins and then make some superficial confession, casually brushing their guilt aside with, oh, well, nobody's perfect, or sorry, God, but after all, I'm only human. Think about the politician, for example, who commits some heinous sin against God, against his family, against his constituents, and the essence of his confession is, I made a mistake. And that is the tendency of prideful, arrogant, fallen humanity. It is to view sin flippantly, casually, instead of grieving over it and mourning over it. The true repentance makes no excuses. True repentance offers no rationalizations. True repentance grieves for sin from a broken heart. There are plenty of people who are sorry in some way for their sin, but sometimes they're only sorry because they fear sin's consequences. 
They dread sin's punishment. It's not really that they're sorry for what they have done. They're just sorry that they got caught. How can you tell the difference? Well, genuine repentance is accompanied by this kind of mourning and it results in a change in your lifestyle. Pity over punishment you might face doesn't result in lasting change, but genuine repentance does. That's why Paul said godly sorrow produces repentance to salvation not to be regretted. But the sorrow of this world, that superficial, flippant repentance, it offers excuses and makes rationalizations, produces death. It's only true sorrow for sin that accompanies repentance and results in lasting change. And the Lord Jesus promises those who are truly repentant to mourn and grieve over their sin by saying they will be comforted. How will we be comforted as we mourn for our sin? We'll be comforted with the assurance of forgiveness. We'll be comforted with the promise that our sin is as far from us in the sight of God as the east is from the west. We'll be comforted with the fact that God looks upon us and remembers our sin no more. We'll be comforted by the fact that our sin has been erased from the sight of the heavenly judge. And when he views us, he sees us just as if we had lived the pure and perfect life of Jesus Christ himself. We'll be comforted by the assurance that we are no longer alienated from a holy God or estranged from a holy God, but we have been reconciled to him. We'll be comforted with the promise, as Paul says in Romans chapter 5, that those who have been justified by faith in Jesus Christ, have peace with God. Enmity has been replaced with peace. We'll be comforted by what Paul writes in Romans chapter 8. There is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. How is this possible? Well, Isaiah 61 that the Lord Jesus is referring to here in these Beatitudes makes it clear. The prophet says, I will rejoice greatly in the Lord. My soul will exult in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has wrapped me with the robe of righteousness. Our gracious God has removed the filthy tattered rags of the spiritual beggar and he has replaced them with the sparkling white robes of righteousness so that when the heavenly judge slams his gavel and declares our verdict the pronouncement will be not guilty not because of who we are and what we have done but because of who Christ is and what Christ has done the Apostle Paul explains how this great exchange works. In 2 Corinthians 5, 21, he says, God made him 
to be sin for us, though he knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. God made him to be sin for us. God took our guilt and placed it upon the shoulders of his righteous, perfect son. And he was punished as if he lived our sinful lives. He knew no sin. He had never experienced sin in any way. He had kept every one of God's commandments, both the positive ones and the negative ones. He was characterized by perfect righteousness, but though he knew no sin, he became sin for us, bearing our guilt and punishment in our place. And the end result is that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. The righteousness of God? How righteous is God? He's not a little righteous. He's not mostly righteous. He is perfectly, completely righteous. And that is the standing that we will have before the heavenly judge on judgment day because of this great exchange. Jesus was punished for our sins so that we could be rewarded for his righteousness. That's why we are comforted. And we experience much of that comfort right here and right now. But notice the tense shift in the promises after saying there is, present tense, the king, kingdom of heaven. He now says, for they shall, future tense, be comforted. And what Christ is saying is that you know the comfort and assurance of my forgiveness here and now. But the day is coming when you will know a comfort that is perfect and complete. He's anticipating the moment described in texts like Revelation 7 and Revelation 21 when God will wipe every tear from our eyes. He's talking about that moment in Revelation 21 when the Creator sits upon the throne and shouts, Behold, I make all things new. He wipes every tear from our eyes and suddenly there's no more death, there's no more sickness, there's no more crying, there's no more pain because the former things are all passed away. And that's the comfort we will know for all eternity. But we will not know that comfort if we try to comfort ourselves by self-medicating spiritually and implying, well, maybe my sin was not so bad as it seemed. And after all, other people do things that are much, much worse. No, we will know this comfort only if we experience the grief and mourning of repentance right now. So my question is, have you repented deeply and sincerely or only flippantly and superficially? Has your heart been broken over your sin? 
so that like James said, you were afflicted and you mourned and you wept. Your laughter was turned to mourning, your joy to heaviness. Have you ever humbled yourself in the sight of the Lord, trusting him to lift you up? Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? My first Sunday here, a, a dear elderly saint in this church walked up to me. And I couldn't even see his face at the moment. He just whispered to me over my shoulder from behind, and he said, We have so much to repent of. We don't know the blessing of God apart from repentance. Our souls won't be blessed with the kingdom and with all comfort unless we recognize we're spiritual beggars and unless we have mourned over the guilt of our sin in a spirit of genuine repentance. But what is more, a church never enjoys God's blessing unless it has expressed the repentance that it's needed to as well. You won't know the fullness of the joy that can be yours right now unless you daily repent of the sins that you have committed. So this is what I'm asking of you. You search your heart. And you ask first if you've ever genuinely repented and sought salvation resting totally on the kindness and mercy and grace of God, giving up all your self-effort, trusting Jesus and his death on the cross alone for your salvation. If, if not, confess faith in him today. The angel told Joseph in Matthew 1, you shall call his name Jesus. That's a beautiful name because it means Yahweh saves, Jehovah saves. And the angel explained, for he shall save his people from their sins. Who are his people that he will save? They are the poor in spirit who recognize their spiritual destitution. They are those who have mourned and grieved with a broken and contrite heart over their sin. If you have not done so before, I pray that you will repent in this way and you will trust Jesus as your God, your Savior, and King so that you can receive the gift of forgiveness and eternal life with Him. But I ask all of us to search our hearts and see if there is any way that we have dishonored the Lord, if there is any way that we have been unloving and unchristlike, and if so, that we will repent deeply and genuinely of that too. You won't find relief from that by trying to mask your guilt and brush it aside. You will only find relief and the comfort Christ alone can provide through genuine repentance.
Dear Father, we pray that you will search the hearts of each one of us. You will bring to our mind any sin that we casually brushed aside and did not take seriously enough, that we will repent, that we will offer to you the sacrifice of a broken heart and a contrite spirit, and that the repentance will be not the worldly sorrow, but the godly sorrow that produces genuine change. In Jesus' name, amen.